one thing that I know about being Indian by origin is that there are some cultural practices that just don't die. Generation after generation, there are certain value systems that are in place that are passed down through families. And so for many people, seeing an Ayurvedic practitioner going to one of these uh, Ayurvedic treatment centers is still a very big part of cultural practice, especially for diseases that cannot be treated by Western medicine, and there are a lot of them. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, as the show's guests demonstrate. By doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. In this episode, Anjali Shatali and I discuss Ayurvedic medicine, past and present, and across cultures. From her grandparents' home in India to her naturopathic practice on the west coast of Canada, Ayurveda has had a major influence on her view of health. Speaking about her relatives both as medical practitioners and as patients, she shares much that she has learned from them. We also cover topics such as the dangers of self-prescribing herbal medicines, diabetes and various approaches to treating those afflicted, and milk, from enzymes to digest it to cultural traditions and ancient preservation practices. Anjali is a faculty member at Pacific Rim College in Victoria, BC, and an instructor in the Holistic Nutrition Online Certificate Program offered through PRC Online. She first embarked on a career in molecular biology and genetics before finding her passion in naturopathic medicine. After graduation with her naturopathic degree, she obtained further qualification in restorative medicine for the treatment of thyroid, adrenal, and other endocrine and metabolic conditions. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Dr. Anjali Shatali. Anjali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Great to have you here. I thought maybe we would start with you sharing a personal story, if perhaps it's personal. What was your first inspiration to get into, we'll call it natural health care? Wow, that's a big question. I and thought I it might be. There's, yeah, <laughs> there's probably two things. Um, number one would be my cultural roots. You know, my uh, grandfather was a conventional medical doctor and the way it was back then in India, which would have been probably in the 1930s, I want to say, was that everybody came to my parents or my dad's house to as patients. So he would be treating patients in part of his home. And so the children had to be very well behaved and very quiet, you know, all my dad and his siblings. Um, but there was a very strict rule in that household, which was that medicine, you know, drugs, pharmacology, all the pharmaceuticals were for the patients. And everybody else got homemade medicine. So my grandmother was sort of the one who took care of the family, even though my father, my grandfather was the doctor. And... Uh, yeah, that got passed down from my dad to me, you know, so he was a big advocate of only using medicine when absolutely necessary. And I was pretty much raised in a natural way without uh, using 
any kind of interventions except when necessary. So we always had, you know, herbal concoctions and home remedies and things brewing and modifying diet, modifying lifestyle, constructive rest. This was always part of my upbringing and it really imprinted upon me strongly and it made me a strong believer in natural health. Why do you suppose your grandfather, who was a medical doctor, had such an interest in natural medicines? I think it was the way of the times as well. You know, 1930s was a different time in India. There was still traditional medicine being practiced widely, as it still is today. I think it had stronger roots then because a lot of the natural materials that were sourced, like the plants and the minerals, a lot of the traditional Ayurvedic practices were much more, um, I don't know what to say, but much more integrated into everyday life. And I think it still continues to be that way when we think about dietary practices that are, let's say, seasonal based, or there's these rules around what can and cannot be eaten based on seasonality that has to do with your constitution, as well as the seasonal elements, if it's damp, if it's cold, if it's hot, if it's dry, you modify your diet accordingly. And that's really deeply, you know, part of the culture. And it continues today. So that was always there, you know, and then on top of that, he practiced medicine. So it really is a way of life. Did you grow up in India? I spent my formulative years there. So what that means is, when I was between the ages of seven and 10. I was in India and I was educated in the Indian system and I learned to speak two languages and I ate everything and picked a lot of plants and (laughs) made plant medicines and all these kinds of things with my cousins and my aunts as I was growing up, yes. How well do you remember that experience? How well? Oh, it's a part of me, I remember it from within. And where did you get to spend those years? Sorry? What part of India did you spend those years in? Oh, uh, that was mostly, well, in two regions. So my ancestral home is on the west coast of India, which is kind of overlooking the Arabian Sea. It's a very beautiful place. And uh, then farther inland, we also have our second home, which is on the other side of the mountains, which are known as the Western Ghats. And if I were to name some places, it would be Pune, India. It's one of the um, educational capitals of the state, the state of Maharashtra. So that's where my family is from. That's incredible. What an experience that must have been. And when you describe your grandmother always had vats of something, some decoctions or brews going, Did she have any training in medicine or was this passed down from generations? I would say it's intergenerational, but it's, like I said, very deeply steeped into the culture. So people will say, you know, oh, you know, don't eat sesame in the summertime. It'll make too much heat in your blood and you'll get agitated or you might get hives or, you know, have these kinds of hot symptoms. So it's very much part of everyday culture. And um, I think it was just passed down through her family tradition on her side as well. And that was kind of what the women did. You know, they were the medicine keepers in that way. And is Ayurveda the only 
or primary traditional medicine of India or are there other systems? Um, I think, no, that is the kind of primary, most widely recognized system. So what I mean by that is, for example, uh, you know, going back more into the ancient history, you could say that I have met some Ayurvedic practitioners from India who have been doing this for generations, you know, so they would be, um, let's say from Northern India, where there were many different principalities and they would serve the royal families of those areas. And they would say, oh, you know, my family has been serving this royal family for five generations and I'm sort of the fifth generation practitioner of Ayurveda. So it is passed down in that way. But I think there's other forms that are maybe less recognized that are sort of more folk medicine as well. But I think it's like India, you know, like every 50 kilometers, the language changes and the culture changes and the people change. And I think it's probably like that with the medicine, too. Yeah. Yeah. How much have the principles of Ayurveda, especially with the food medicine, how much has that informed your nutritional and naturopathic practice? I would say quite deeply. <laughs> I never call myself an Ayurvedic practitioner, first of all. Uh, I haven't been formally trained, and I know that there's an emphasis on that when people ask, but I think my intuitive understanding of it is quite deep. And is that the main type of philosophy that you integrate into your nutritional therapy? It's one of them. Uh, it definitely plays a key role in how I view the overall picture of what's presented. So, for example, somebody might come in with a very Western-sounding diagnosis, you know, gastric ulcers, for example, and then we might look at it from a very Western perspective, which I've also been trained with as a naturopath. So things that might aggravate ulcers that we know about, like caffeine or highly acidic food or alcohol or smoking or stress. And then I might find out from that person's diet and lifestyle what else is going on that might be contributing to these symptoms. But then when it comes to making these therapies, recommendations, I might say, yeah, you know, eat more cooling foods, right? What does that look like? Okay, maybe more vegetables, maybe things that are considered more yin, things that are more watery, things that are more moistening or lubricating. And then I would work that into the nutritional plan. So it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. It seems like in the last decade, at least, the presence of Ayurvedic herbs and nutritional, I'll call them supplements, but I think they're mostly plant-based, have arrived on the shelves in the West, and people have become a lot more familiar with a lot of the plant-based remedies. What is your take on the, the effectiveness of those on the Western culture versus on the Indian culture? And are we potentially overdoing it a bit by buying into a lot of nice marketing and and a lot of evidence that says this plan is helpful but is it as helpful across culture i think you have to remember the cultural context and how everything is used that has a lot to do with the efficacy of something and when i see a lot of ayurvedic herbs for example 
on the shelves. Some of them are sold as single items and the formulary in that case has to be put together by the practitioner. And I don't think the average person necessarily knows. So it's not just one herb, uh, one outcome. That's a very reductionistic approach, which is in part, you know, due to reductionism, which is a philosophy that emerges from the West. So it's like that with anything though, right? We take something out of its context and then expect it to have the same therapeutic effect. Uh, unfortunately with Ayurveda, for example, to answer the first part of your question, how does it compare East versus West, for example, it's quite strong in India and people still respect it and go to these Ayurvedic practitioners who don't just prescribe the herbs, for example, you know, there's other therapies that are involved with purgation or enema therapy or panchakarma, where you kind of reset the entire system of the body through application of therapeutic oils and massage. And there's all these centers that have been established there to help treat uh, deeply rooted chronic conditions and bring balance back into the body. And so when we look at it from that perspective, taking just one herb or a few herbs that might be applied during those therapies without the other supportive therapies that I just mentioned, the efficacy would naturally not be as profound. And do you feel that there is a, I don't know about a health risk, but just a, a risk in having so many of these plant-based medicines available in the West now without the proper experts to help give advice, give prescriptions. Like for example, you can buy kilogram bags of Shatavari and what are people going to do with that? And are they, are they doing it correctly? It's so funny you mentioned Shatavari because that's the first thing that actually came to my mind, which is known to be a uterine tonic, as well as a type of aphrodisiac as well. Shatha meaning a hundred, Vari meaning roots or husbands. So it's a woman who has the potential of having a hundred husbands in terms of fertility as well as uh, sexual capacity. But the truth of Shatavari also is that if you have a more kapha type of constitution, meaning more water and earth, your body tends to accumulate more uh, heavier, denser elements in your tissues, including things like fibroids or lumps or you know lipomas. Those are very kapha type conditions. Shatavari will aggravate that. And so you can't just take Shatavari on its own. You have to take it with other elements that might first move the blood or be more dispersing energetically before you apply that very heavy building kind of herb. And so, yes, it has to be considered in the whole, not just herbal allies that work together, but the actual constitution of the person. Um, and then also what is aggravated in that person, what's out of balance. Could the aggravation by taking that actually worsen the condition or would it just be a case of this is kind of useless for you? You're wasting time and money. No, it has the potential to do harm. So potentially yeah. it could worsen a condition. Things like uterine fibroids, for example, would in this case be worsened. Mm -hmm. And then is there an impact on the local culture and environment by having so many of these herbs now exported in mass quantities around the globe? Are people in yeah. India struggling to actually find some of them now or have access to them? I know I, I spent a lot of time in Sri Lanka and some of the world's finest teas are grown there, but you can't drink them in Sri Lanka because they're all exported out. 
Yeah. So there's two parts to your question. If we, if I just look at the last part, which is the Sri Lanka example, has to do with cash crops, right, and commodities. So that kind of brings me to the first part of your question: is that are we commodifying these herbs? You know, are they being treated like commodities for mass production and then mass consumption on the global market? And is that depleting local resources? And my experience, my direct experience has been that I actually went on this amazing tour when I was in Pune of an Ayurvedic college. Uh, and it was great to see all these herbs being dried out in the sun and people making medicines and grinding up the powders and the whole herbal dispensary where the practitioners were going to mix different formula. Some of the, uh, you know, Ayurvedic commonly herbals are coming in the pill form. So this system of producing pills and then drying them out. And so in that way, it was quite lively and vibrant and it seemed accessible to me. I also got to see some other things, you know, uh, bloodletting and removing toxins from the blood is a very important part of the therapy. So jars of leeches, you know, with tongs to apply them to patients at various places. So in that way, there, there is a strong tradition that's still around. But on the other hand, when I went to the village, you know, where my aunt lives, and she lives close to our ancestral home, so on the West Coast, looking out onto the Arabian Sea, um, what I, her husband also happens to be a doctor, and I went into their attic, you know, they have this massive house, and I went into their attic, and I saw all these old dusty bottles full of different medicines, and, you know, that kind of dimly lit light collecting cobwebs, you know, with this filtered light coming in through the top rafters, and I was just looking at them, and I said, what's, what's up there? What's in all that stuff? And he said, oh, those are just old Ayurvedic medicines that have been passed down from my father, and I said, how come you don't use it. How can you practice more modern, contemporary Western style medicine and not use these formulas and you're not building them? We live in this incredible biodiverse region. So the West Coast of India or the Western Ghats is the second most bio biodiverse region in the world outside of the Brazilian rainforest. And so you have this explosion of flora and fauna and all these potential medicines that could be made available if he were to prepare them. And I didn't understand why while living there, he wasn't making any of these things happen. And he said simply that people aren't interested in it because they need to take a pill, get rid of their fever and then go back to work. So these therapies take a lot longer. You know, when we look at actually rejuvenating the body or actually removing an imbalance from the body, it's not just going to be a day, right? It's not like take a couple of aspirin and have some, you know, have rest and go back to work. So there's also that demand too, that the culture has also changed. That change has been since your grandfather's time when Ayurveda was more widely accepted as a form of medicine. Now it is, I guess, for lack of better words, the Western medical system is infiltrating and having a, a very strong influence in India. Is that the case? I think they coexist side by side. You know, there's a lot of cultural elements that um, I would say, just from my own perspective, you know, I can't talk 
for the whole nation of India. There's so many people. But <laughs> from my own perspective, yeah, you know, only the, I think it's going to soon be the most populated country in the world. One thing that I know about being Indian by origin is that there are some cultural practices that just don't die. Generation after generation, there are certain value systems that are in place that are passed down through families. And so for many people, seeing an Ayurvedic practitioner going to one of these uh, Ayurvedic treatment centers is still a very big part of cultural practice, especially for diseases that cannot be treated by Western medicine. And there are a lot of them you know, or even chronic diseases like diabetes, for example, that is a chronic, debilitating, progressive condition. There are many people who will seek Ayurvedic treatment. Even in my own family, I would say, yes. And can you give, with diabetes, can you give an example or a, a, tell a narrative of how it can be effective to use Ayurvedic medicine? Because often with, I think, which is always the case with Western medicine, diabetes is a pharmaceutically treated condition, and that's kind of the end of the story. Is it a different picture with Ayurvedic medicine? Yes, absolutely. So first would be diet therapy, exercise therapy, a, as a approach to regulating blood sugar. The funny thing is that not all people who have diabetes are necessarily overweight. So that's also one of the challenges of Western medicine is that for a physically average person who's within that body mass index range, who has diabetes, they're actually very difficult to manage with Western medicine. It's very difficult. If someone has the classic picture of diabetes, which is that they're outside of that body mass index range, they're considered sometimes obese, then it seems to be a good fit for Western medicine. But once you start to approach it from an Ayurvedic perspective, you're literally turning that whole physiology on its head. <laughs> so you're going to be using elimination therapies and detoxification therapies, purgation therapies, massage to move all the accumulated lymph and fat and stimulate the metabolism, constructive rest, nourishing tonics to build or rebuild certain systems, reducing stress, which is which plays a huge part, but then really working on some key organs like the liver and the pancreas, as we know, are extremely important, whether you look at it from the Western or Eastern perspective, because it really is mostly a disease of so-called Western civilization. And so there's been many uh, accounts, you know, using herbal medicine with all these other physical practices of Ayurveda to, to restore or bring close to normal blood sugar, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think a, a restoration of health is actually possible just th through those practices and not um, practices that need to continue for the rest of one's life as far as taking uh plant medicines, for example, I, I find that just with the right diet changes and maybe with the initial dosages of those herbs that someone can reach a point of restoration or homeostasis and diabetes is no longer an issue. Is that something you've seen? Yes. Yes. I would even say, you know, my father's friend has done that for himself. He 
would eat it sounds funny but he would eat half a shredded cabbage half a shredded carrot raw every single day uh drink apple cider vinegar and then do other ayurvedic treatments and then he would walk two hours each day to bring his blood sugar under control and he lived for many 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 years with very very close to normal blood sugar so mm -hmm. he was pretty much medication free and i've seen other examples of people completely changing their diet around doing stress management practices such as meditation really getting into what those triggers are that set off our adrenal system because every time we have a adrenaline response we also increase the amount of blood sugar that's in our bloodstream and so that is also a trigger for something like diabetes where if that blood sugar is constantly being pumped into the bloodstream uh, it's going to obviously increase the blood sugar and create a problem and the other part of it is the liver because recycle its insulin receptors and there is a loss of insulin sensitivity when it comes to many people who have diabetes. That's often the pre-step where their body doesn't respond to the insulin that's being secreted. And so the glucose isn't going from the blood into the cells. And so if we, you know, through Ayurvedic practices can improve insulin sensitivity, and a lot of herbs are targeted towards this, the specific ones uh, like gymnema, for example, is one that is used widely for improving insulin sensitivity, then you can kind of take this all systems approach. You know, it has to come from every angle for it to work. And that's what Ayurveda is. You know, that's why it's a very comprehensive holistic system. So I've right. seen, yes, I've seen it. Yes. I think I probably personally was either diabetic or borderline diabetic during my teen years. I had just an atrocious diet, but I was one of those that you mentioned that was certainly not obese. I was very active, but I had a lot of symptoms of it. And it wasn't until I was probably 17 that I actually started thinking about what I was eating and had a very radical change in my diet uh, for the next few years until I was eating very clean. And basically all of those symptoms went away. And it's really only in retrospect that I, I can look back and be like, wow, I think I was on the path to something not so good. And I have a, a family member, a cousin, who's only a year older than me, who probably had a very similar diet and didn't make those changes and went on to develop very serious diabetes. So I can definitely see the, the benefit in making, and in my case, it was simply making nutritional modifications that I think was the ticket to it all. I didn't even know about plant medicines at the time, really. It's an, it's so great that you shared that with me because it, it just speaks to how we have the capacity to turn our health around. It takes a lot of discipline and a lot of will and support. It doesn't happen in a bubble, you know? No, no. And I think in my case, it was less discipline and simply more... <laughs> information, more knowledge. I started to learn more about health and realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't be eating sugary cereals throughout the day and sugar everything. I was, I had such an addiction to sugar that I worked at a restaurant for most of my teenage years, well, probably up until about 17. And driving the 20 minutes to that restaurant, there were days where I had to pull over and take a nap. 
and I just couldn't figure it out. And then I went on to university and I had started to shift my diet, but not, not enough at that point. I would fall asleep in class. And I was like, what's wrong with me? I'm, I'm sleeping well, I'm getting plenty of rest, and yet I can't stay awake. And I'm quite certain I was simply on sugar highs and lows and just on that constant roller coaster. And that's something It's so that, easy. Yeah, it's so easy to get there and so hard to realize it and then to get off of that roller coaster. Because everything in the food industry is basically loaded with sugar and refined flour. I mean, those are the two first foods that were refined and made abundant after the Industrial Revolution and have been with us since then. And it's fast sugar. Yeah, <laughs> and it's highly, highly and it's addictive. addictive. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's it's super addictive and and we're all plagued by it. I, I can relate to what you're saying as well, because I I have diabetes in my family, you know, uh, many South Asians do. And and so my father has diabetes. My mother has diabetes. My brother has diabetes. My other brother and I are the only two people that don't. My other brother who doesn't is constantly walking. He is constantly moving and exercising. He's he's not addicted to exercise, but he, you know, if if anyone says, oh, your stomach's looking a little something, he'll immediately get on it and get back in shape. And I also have to constantly be moving or doing something. I'm I'm aware of the impact that physical activity has on regulating blood sugar because it's so easy for me to feel, oh, I think. I think I need a little pick me up. I think I need a little energy. I think I should eat something. And then I say, no, wait a minute. I think I should actually exercise and get that blood going in my body, get that glycogen being released as glucose that's in storage form, use that for energy. And then when I do that, then I'll eat. And it seems to work for me really well. So there's many different strategies to this. And it really depends on the metabolic type that you are. I think that's so important for people to hear that when they are feeling low in energy and perhaps their blood sugar is low, that it doesn't necessarily mean they need to go eat the nearest thing they can find. Walk, do some exercise. If you're on a road trip, maybe that doesn't mean stop at the nearest gas station and buy junk food. Maybe it means stop in nature and go for a walk. So with the knowledge of Ayurveda in your family and such a prevalence of diabetes, has there been a reluctance to use the traditional medicines to help maintain or restore health or? I think it's a bit of both. So with my dad, it was definitely stress related because he's a thin diabetic. Uh, so is my brother actually. And so is my mother, to be honest, we all aren't overweight. And like I said, it's difficult to manage when you are thin. Some I, I don't know what the science behind it is, to be honest with you. So my mother, for example, has some nerve damage because she's had it for quite a long period of time. And she has the classic neuropathy, which is a way of describing high blood sugar damaging nerve cells in your body. And she experiences it in her arms mostly. And she feels it with hot and cold sensations. And um, also with when she lifts things, she doesn't sometimes feel like she has that grip strength because the nerves, of course, have to communicate to your muscles in order to contract. So what she does, which is a part of a traditional therapy, and this has worked for her for the last five years, and I think it's just so incredible, is that she takes five garlic cloves, crushes them with the skin on, and then fries them in sesame oil, no other oil will do, 
and then she eats them over the course of a week and then repeats. And her neuropathy went away in what she claims was five days. Wow. And as soon as she stops, it tends to revert back. So it's something that she has to keep doing as a lifestyle practice. To me, that's amazing. And that's an Ayurvedic medicine that she's started using and it works. And with both the sesame oil and garlic being so hot in nature, is there an issue in taking that year round? For my mom, yes, she does overheat. <laughs> She's hot headed and hot tempered. Then the question is, you know, how can we balance that balance, out? Maybe yep. eating eating more leafy greens, eating more cooling foods, doing more yin activities, constructive rest, things like that, that will bring balance into the system. So it doesn't necessarily always have to be through diet. You can do lifestyle modification to bring that energetic balance in as well. Mm -hmm. However, to answer your question completely, she does take insulin as well. Okay. And it's the same with my dad. He also takes insulin. And that's one of those things where once he was diagnosed, he was still working and now he's retired. But back then he said, okay, what's the quickest way to fix this? Cause I don't have time. We need to get to work and get going and keeping productive and earning and supporting the family and all these other things. So in your experience, once someone is taking insulin, is there a path to eventually stop? It's interesting because I used to work at a Chinese medicine clinic when I was in Toronto and the doctor I worked with was a medical doctor from China. And we were talking once about the subject of diabetes. And when I asked her what they did in China, just out of curiosity, you know, how are things working in other countries? What do people do? She said, the first thing they do when someone is diagnosed with diabetes is they put them on insulin right away which is the opposite of how we do things here in the West. Usually you go on some type of blood sugar regulator like metformin, which is a very common drug. That's the one my brother's taking. And what she said is that if you go on insulin right away, as soon as you're diagnosed for a very short period of time, it's possible to come off of it. So it's almost like a stepping stone, like an intervention where you go on a short-term hormone therapy that is giving the signal to your body, okay, we have enough insulin, we have enough glucose coming into our cells, and then support the body in taking over. And it seems to work. I don't have firsthand experience with it, but I would love to see this put more in action. Hmm. Yeah, instead in the West, yeah, instead in the West, what we do is we put someone on metformin, and then we might switch it to gliburide, and then we wait till the condition gets worse, and then eventually they go on insulin and then they go on slow and fast acting insulin. There's two kinds and then it keeps going on. Then you have to take cardiac medication because diabetes affects, uh, increases your risk of all kinds of cardiovascular events. So then you get those cardiovascular medicines piled on top. Then you have to go on to blood thinners. Then eventually it affects your kidneys. So you have to get into kidney stuff as well. And it just keeps going on with the pharmacy. You know, that's the track here. And I mean, I was just listening to, I was reading a book by Michael Pollan. Um, I can't remember its name right now. In Defense of Food. Yep. And one of the quotes that he made from a different contributor, I can't remember his name right now, but he said that diabetes in the West has become a lifestyle. So it's no longer considered an anomaly. It's no yes. longer considered a 
conditions, like everybody has it. And my rebuttal to that is just because it's common doesn't make it normal. There's a huge difference in that. You can normalize something that's very common, but that doesn't make it the norm, like that doesn't make it the normal human way. And what I found very interesting about that statement is that it's now become a lifestyle, is that in the United States, you know, President Joe Biden just said that he was going to give an enormous amount of money to supporting patients who had diabetes. And that's great. You know, you want to see people supported who can't afford the medications. But at the same time, I thought to myself, this is just more normalization of something that we shouldn't really even be faced with, you know? Yes. It's a controllable illness. And I, not knowing anything about that uh, new announcement of funds, I'm highly suspicious about how that's going to be used and where it's going to end up. And if it ends up mostly in the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies, then we're not really benefiting anyone but those <laughs> those who stand to gain yeah. financially from it. Because as you said, the medicalization of patients with diabetes is a, it's a, a runaway train. And it just keeps building more and more and more speed until it crashes. Which, as you said, is very, very different from the approach of... Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic as well. And probably all other traditional medicines are going to treat it in a more similar way to Ayurveda and Chinese medicine. Tell me a bit about your practice mm -hmm. and what your specialties are. Mm. If, we, if we can call them specialties, what your passions are. Let's change it to that. Well, my I, call, I like to call it my special focus. So... I think I was really stumped, you know, when I first graduated from naturopathic college, because I say this now, but I truly am eclectic in the sense that I'm a master of none. I'm a, I'm a broad generalist. I, I just, I'm so interested in so many different things. And it was very difficult for me to hone in on a specific area or a specific element of the human body. I did extra coursework in botanical medicine, for example, even when I was a student, I somehow got involved with one of the uh, former chairs of the Ontario Herbalist Association, and she had put together this small group of students that would go to her property every weekend and collect herbs and make tinctures and learn about all the amazing benefits that plant medicine could offer. And I continued in that vein for a long time. I also was very, very interested in homeopathy because that was one of the tools that my grandmother always used, you know, first sign of fever or inflammation, you know, ferrum foss and calimur, tissue salts right off the bat for everybody. And of course, then there's this Ayurveda piece and it was very difficult for me. I Before I came to naturopathic medicine, my background is actually in molecular genetics. I used to work at a lab and at Queen's University. And my work there was looking at gene therapy for hemophilia type B. And I really did this 180 switch, as you can see, from going 
on a trajectory that was completely medical and reductionistic. And one day, you know, I had to grow these cell cultures when I was in the lab and it was a beautiful lab. It was this penthouse lab. We had massive funding behind us and it was really state of the art. And I was just standing in my work area inside this negative air pressure room that was covered in glass. And I was looking out over the trees and I was checking on my cells. That's why I was there. I had to grow these cell cultures and look at them and take little samples to make sure that they weren't contaminated and they were growing the way they should be. And I was taking this plastic pipette and doing all this work and by myself. And I just looked out the window and I was, I was thinking, wow, I'm so far away from everything that's green, everything's so white and sterile. And I'm in this negative air pressure chamber and I'm dealing with cells inside this plastic Petri dish and keeping it this controlled environment and this controlled temperature with this controlled humidity. And it's so unlike everything that's out there that is life. And something just happened in my brain, you know, where I decided that that was it for me, that I had done what I needed to do there. And it was time to look for something else. Well, the strangest thing was I had a biochemistry class right after because I was doing this work. I thought it would be great for me to take an additional biochem course. So I sat down uh, and picked up this local paper called The Golden Words, which is an engineering paper at Queens. And I don't actually read The Golden Words. I had that pick. I was picking it up for a friend of mine because he lived in Scotland and he said, you know, can you just send me the latest copy of the golden words? So I picked up the golden words and I flipped it face down on my desk where I was sitting in the lecture hall and I looked at it and there was an ad on it for naturopathic college. And I said, oh my gosh, I just decided today in the lab that I was going, I was done. Here's the ad. That's what I'm doing. And I didn't even think twice about it. And then everything just exploded for me. I was interested in everything. So going back to your question about my clinical focus, how did that happen? It actually happened by chance because I got into all this endocrinology stuff, as we've just talked about with diabetes. And then a colleague of mine was in the United States and he said, I'm doing this thing called restorative medicine. He had graduated a few years ahead of me and it's all focused on herbal stuff. I think you'd really love it. And I said, okay, I'll come, I'll do some extra work, find out what this is about. And a lot of it was focused on thyroid and adrenal health and using herbal medicine for that and the connection between the thyroid and the adrenal. And of course, there was some great speakers that weekend on diabetes as well. And I just got into it more and more, especially all the thyroid stuff, because I started to realize something that people hadn't really been talking about much back then. Now people talk about it a lot, which is that your thyroid is responsible for setting your basal metabolic rate. Everybody knows that. That's the rate at which you burn calories while at rest. Okay, that's fine. But the cool thing about your BMR is it really sets the tone or the pace for everything else that's happening in your body. How well your cognitive function is, how well you're detoxing, your reproductive health, your growth and repair, your tissue health, inflammation. It has a huge, huge, huge role to play, the thyroid gland in all those functions. And so I got more and more interested in thyroid and adrenal health, and I started to develop my niche that way. And I would say even today, that still is my clinical focus. The only other add-on I have to that is when I was at the Chinese medicine clinic, it was a fertility clinic 
primarily that was the clinical focus there. So I started to see the connection between low thyroid function and infertility in men and women. And so I paired those together and I started treating fertility conditions exclusively by addressing adrenal and thyroid function. And then that became my specialty or special focus, you could say. What do you think is the one of the major causes of the explosion of thyroid issues that we are seeing? Toxicity, environmental contamination and toxicity. We know that heavy metals play a huge role in uh, interfering with thyroid function, specifically things like hormone conversion. And the other thing that we know is that any kind of radiation, so uh, nuclear fallout, nuclear radiation, will also damage thyroid function. What is the remedy for those challenges or the remedies? Well, when we look at heavy metal toxicity, for example, there's a two-part remedy for that. Number one is, of course, limiting your exposure. These are things that are often unavoidable. People don't necessarily know what to limit. So we'll set that one aside for a moment. However, a lot of what is eliminated in our body is through the liver and kidneys. So having proper liver and kidney support would be the first step. And that might not sound like much or very exciting, but the truth is that any, you know, here's an example of what's exciting for me anyway, is that as soon as a person is stressed and they have an adrenal, you know, adrenaline surge, and it goes back to that fight or flight response, the blood circulation to your liver is reduced to 30%. So that means you're not detoxifying in that point, anything. And so that plays a huge role. So stress management, adrenal function, adrenal support, and then proper liver elimination. We have all these wonderful herbs and supplements for that. And the other piece of it is, of course, making sure that you eliminate well through your colon. So that's going to bind a lot of these toxins and pull them out of your system. The other part of it is that your body will tend to accumulate heavy metals more when there is a deficiency of minerals that your body needs. So for example, if your body needs strontium for bone development, which is a trace mineral, and no strontium is available, then it'll pick up radioactive strontium that is in the environment instead, because it's very similar chemically, but it's not getting the strontium that it needs. So it'll take up another form of it that's chemically similar, but of course, more harmful. How do you normally, or is there a normal way that you treat thyroid deficiency? Is it through, you know, some people, uh, naturopaths recommend things such as Synthroid. Uh, I know there are various variations on supplements for the thyroid. What is your go-to? Mm, such a good question. Do you ever supplement with natural thyroid from oh sources. like desiccated thyroid mm -hmm. uh yeah i i don't really and i'll tell you why it's because of the science and the science says that when you take desiccated thyroid the amount of active thyroid that's in there we don't know how much it is it could be very very it could be highly variable so the folks that i would have on desiccated thyroid would be the ones that already came in and are responding well to it and that they know it works for them. 
then I, then I don't touch it. I say, okay, let's, let's stay on that. Let's see what else is going on. You know, and there's some kind of, we talked about, you know, metabolic rate, but what's the general symptom picture of someone who has low thyroid, typically uh, feeling cold because metabolism isn't working, feeling fatigued, same thing, sometimes brain fog, cognitive function impairment, uh, hair loss, because hair isn't really essential for survival. It's an extra feature. So things like that, poor wound healing. So again, pointing to metabolism, uh, unwanted weight, difficulty losing weight, difficulty sleeping, low motivation and sex drive is a common one too, because again, your metabolic rate is affected. So constipation, that's another one I commonly see as well as joint pains and aches. And so it seems like the symptoms are sort of all over the place, but they're all related to hypo metabolism or slow or sluggish metabolism. So the approach there is to help improve the person's metabolism. Well, what's that? So typically my go-to herbs are anything that has a fair amount of iodine in it. So kelp, bugle or kelp, or anything that's an ocean vegetable is probably the best way to go. And then we have some natural members of the mint family, like bugleweed, that can help with improving thyroid function as well. To play devil's advocate, how do you ensure that the person who is taking ocean-based foods is not increasing their exposure to radiation? It's a tough one. I mean, you can go for cell-grown or lab-grown cultures. You know, they're grown in the water. Um, then they're sort of assured to be contaminant free, but the ocean is one water body. And so it's a cost benefit analysis. Basically two tablespoons of dried seaweed is going to give you about close to 500% of your iodine needs. So you don't need to take it every single day. You know, you can take a small amount and the amount of radiation that's in that is probably even smaller. The counter to that would be making sure that you're taking a ton of antioxidants, which everybody I think should be taking anyway from free radical damage as well. So these are natural substances that protect ourselves, cells from all kinds of damage. So that would be another one. Do you support the kidneys and the liver in all patients with thyroid problems? Is that one of your, your go-to therapies? I would say in all patients over 40. Those are organs that we, that those are organs that are absolutely essential to maintaining our overall health. It's just a very general statement, but the truth is, is that the liver filters so many things, blood, we talked about insulin receptors earlier, turning those over. The liver also makes a lot of your metabolic fats that your body needs. So we think about cardiovascular risk reduction and so on and so on. It recycles your hormones, it, the list just goes on. So the liver is is really the hub of, of many, many treatment approaches for many conditions. And the kidneys is sort of the back end of elimination of whatever's being filtered through the liver. So those are key, yeah. So when you but say- But honestly, yeah, yeah, go ahead. When you say all patients over the age of 40, you mean all patients. You don't mean just thyroid. Yeah, I don't mean just thyroid in that case. No. Yeah. Okay. It's it's diet and lifestyle related. Yeah. You know, we basically don't eat enough fiber. There's a stat that I read: ninety eight, ninety five percent of North Americans do not eat adequate fiber. So that tells me that ninety five percent of North Americans are not effectively eliminating through their colon. 
that tells me that their kidneys and their lungs are having to bear the burden, which they're not designed to eliminate that type of waste. And it means that things are getting backlogged in the liver. So mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> How much of that statistic can you verify with your clinical practice? Does that seem to be fairly accurate? 95%? I always show people the Bristol stool index or the Bristol stool chart that shows what your poops actually look like, you Mm -hmm. know, um, from liquid to hard round pellets. And I ask people, what, what are you familiar with? What do you see? You know, some people don't see anything. They're like, I don't even look, I don't know. And some people say, oh, my doctor tells me that it's okay if I poop once a week. I still have people who say that. Hmm. So, yeah. So the elimination is a real issue. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Switching gears a bit, you are part of the faculty at Pacific Rim College. And I guess not too recently now, but. Um, last year you guys released at Pacific Rim College Online a new certificate course in holistic nutrition. Yes. What was your gift to Ah. potential students in that program? I don't know if you mean what courses did I teach or some other gifts. (laughs) (laughs) What courses did you teach in that program? Uh, World History of Nutrition. That's where a lot of folks begin. And Materia Medica of Food which goes through all the foods and the nutrients that they provide and what doses we need them in at what life stage and then best ways to prepare them to optimize the nutrition. And then I also teach food ecology and sustainability, which is a fascinating course that's everything about the food system and what can make us better, what can make us well, how we can reclaim our place away from industrialized eating and some of the history of traditional food systems and the politics of food as well. Okay, I'm gonna put you on the spot with one of those world history of food. Can you share something that's interesting that perhaps you teach in the course on world history? Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating stories that I came across while putting the course material together was our relationship to dairy and eating dairy. It's a controversial subject, of course, the idea of eating dairy. And I wanted to really deep dig into the origins of it. And what I learned is that as a human family, so first of all, you know, let's look at ourselves as a human family. We know that the first people who were consuming dairy were the ones who kept animals, who were herders herders of mammals specifically. And these mammals were being herded, kept in groups all across the world, right? So just depends where you look at. If you're looking at the Tibetan plateau, we had yaks. If we are looking at the Central Asian steep, we had horses and sheep. Some people had goats and so on. But these are all mammals that produce milk. And so the consumption of milk went hand in hand with our herding tradition. And herding existed at a time where we were sort of semi-nomadic. So it was, yes, around the time of the first agricultural revolution, which was approximately 10,000 years ago. At the same time, people were also living a semi-nomadic lifestyle where they were wandering or 
moving with animals so that they could graze. These were the herders. And they sort of intermixed with people who were settled farmers. And what's interesting is that once the milk, you know, if we're going back to talking about herders, once you collected the milk, it's not that easy to travel with milk. Obviously, it's a very impractical substance. And so what herders did was take the intestines of sheep, if you can imagine a long tube, and then pour the milk in one end, the other end, of course, would be tied off. And then they would sort of do this thing where they would let the milk flow from one end to the other inside the sheep intestine. And what we know about sheep intestines or any intestines is that they have a huge microbial diversity. And this would start to ferment and curdle the milk as it was being moved up and down through this intestinal tube. And that became the origins of all kinds of fermented milk beverages like kormis, it was called at the time, or um, kefir, as we also know, and, and other fermented products. And from there, we started to dry these products so that compressing the water out of these preserved milk drinks, you could say, would make cheese. And then that cheese was much, much easier to travel with if you were a herder. And so that those are some of the early origins of how we started fermenting milk and preserving milk and increasing the microbial content of it to make it so digestible and yummy. Very cool. Now, what is your position on consuming dairy? And as far as I know, humans are the only mammals that actually drink the dairy or the milk of other animals, other species. Is it beneficial or not? And I know it, that also depends on which cultures you're looking at. Yeah, so let's talk about the cultures that we're looking at, because if we look at people who are descended from uh, herders or can trace their ancestry back to some of the herders, then they are the people who are going to be most likely able to digest milk uh, and dairy products. And what we know about human evolution is that there's many people on earth who basically lose the enzyme to digest dairy probably after the age of two, you know, which is, which is normal because we are born, we're also mammals, we also drink breast milk, and then after a period of time we lose the enzyme lact lactose, um, which is the milk sugar, to the enzyme is lactase, sorry, to break down the milk sugar that's associated with breaking down dairy. And in some people, in some groups of people, this enzyme persists well beyond age two into the adult years. And so that has to do with how closely that group of people has co-evolved with keeping animals through their ancestral history. For the folks who do lose that enzyme later on, I would highly not recommend dairy. These are the people who have a lot of symptoms like IBS, bloating, gas, constipation, um, just not feeling well, systemic inflammation when they consume dairy. And you said so, most people lose the lipase enzyme. Is that correct? Most. So if you're uh, South, so if you're Asian, if uh, uh, indigenous, uh, indigenous North American, uh, many African tribes, many African people, uh, depending on what part of Africa you're from, also don't have enzymes to digest milk after the age of two. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And so avoiding so, it is the best, in your opinion, avoiding it is best in that, that case. Especially if they're digestive symptoms, yes. You know, uh, and the devil is in the dose. That's the other thing is that it's not always sort of binary, like on-off switch. Uh, you might produce low levels of it. So you might be able to tolerate a little bit of milk in your tea. But then if you have a milkshake, which I don't know who drinks those anymore, <laughs> but if you do, if you eat a ton of yogurt or any of these other things or ice cream, and then you notice you're developing symptoms, it means that you've reached that threshold where your body can take a little bit, but it can't take yeah. more because you're only producing a small amount. And that is genetic. Yes. What do you find is the best uh, variation of milk to consume is that kefir or yogurt or cheese or raw or do you have any suggestions yeah two percent of yeah i have lots of opinions two percent of canadians consume raw milk raw milk is also a highly politicized mm -hmm. um thing it's illegal to Seems buy sell or odd that it is but yes yeah, it's illegal to buy, sell, or even gift raw milk. Mm -hmm. The only way you can consume raw milk in Canada is if you, it's if it's your cow, if you are the owner of the cow. And so there are certain communities where you can become cow shares. A sh yeah, cow shares. Yeah. And so that's a workaround. And yeah. I think you know where I'm going with this is that I am a supporter of consuming raw dairy personally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've interviewed Sally Fallon on the show, and for anyone who knows her and her approach, dairy is a huge part of it, and raw dairy always. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of evidence over decades and centuries that show that those who do consume large amounts of raw dairy have uh, very healthy and long lifespans, uh, and yet. As you said, most of us don't have that enzyme to digest milk, so I, uh, it's always a bit of a conundrum. I, I find nutrition in general is a bit of a conundrum because we're all so different and we all uh, have such different needs and there's always experts on diverse sides of every perspective. So it's, it is, uh, it's a challenge, I think, for anyone to navigate through the world of nutrition, which in part is why I think it's important these courses that that uh, are available to people, especially on holistic nutrition, such as the holistic nutrition certificate that you're part of, because it does help to give a well-rounded perspective. Uh, it doesn't mean it's without opinions, because there's always going to be that, but I think it helps the student to be just better educated, which in my experience, as I said, going from a teenager into adulthood, I knew I needed to shift something. I wasn't quite sure what, but I started to learn more and, and shift more. It gives you the tools to make empowered choices about your own health. And when we do that, just as you've given your example, and I've done the same for myself, that is life-changing. And then you see the value in it. I see the value in it. And it makes me want to share that with other people. And help them find out how they can make empowered choices for themselves because this whole idea the whole confusion around nutrition in my opinion is also created by design to drive the whole industry you know and what i mean by that is 
you know, the science says coffee is good, then the science says coffee is bad, then the science says wine is good, then the science says wine is bad. And it, as long as people are kept in this perpetual state of confusion, they'll keep just doing whatever it is that they're doing. But if you're actually getting some hard facts about what are the nutrients in food, how they do impact health. Everybody knows what kind of health conditions they're facing themselves. They can start with themselves. I start with myself, <clears throat> just like many practitioners and physicians of all kinds throughout history have always experimented on themselves first. Then their family members became the guinea pigs. And then it sort of goes from there, you know? Yeah. In your experience, is there any health condition chronic? that cannot be helped by food-based therapies? No, there isn't. When you say helped, I think nutrition is the foundation for our biological beings. And so regardless of the disease or the imbalance, that can still be there. You know, we may not be able to eradicate it because part of the human condition is that ultimately our body fails us and we die. Yeah. But at the same time, how optimally is our body functioning as we go through this trajectory of life, go through the life cycle, it can always be supported by nutrition at every stage. Mm -hmm. So all people, regardless of what they are afflicted with, short of uh, absolutely acute trauma, which even though that can be supported by food-based therapy, but all people can grow stronger and healthier through better food choices, through better nutrition. Well, you're given the essential building blocks of what you need to gain balance in your body by design. So our body is, you know, as we know, divided up into many different systems and those systems are all designed to work together, but they do different things in our body. And everybody knows that, you know, your immune system, your digestive system, your nervous system, your reproductive system, but they all work as an integrated whole. And so I think what disease is often is that let's say, you know, your nervous system isn't getting what it needs. Well, it might show up as a condition then in the reproductive system. Or let's say your digestive system isn't getting what it needs. And so that condition might then show up in the connective tissue system with joint inflammation and arthritis. And so our body has a way of sort of maybe sometimes showing a deficiency syndrome by taking, I don't know how to say this, but by taking the nutrients that it needs and then almost relegating it to the system that needs it the most. Right. If we are more balanced, then our body doesn't have to do that reshuffling and all systems then can have what it, they need to function properly and heal as well. And, yes. and I do believe that the digestive system really is the foundation for that because it's the access point by which all nutrients enter the rest of the body. So if that system fails, and that's what they say in Ayurveda going back full circle, is that if your di the root is in the digestive system, that is the beginning and the end of all diseases. Mm -hmm. So it's like in the case of a highly acidic internal environment, the body pulling calcium and other minerals from the bone to help buffer that acidity, which does the trick. It keeps the blood acid level at an appropriate level, but as a side effect, you're weakening your bones. Absolutely. So I, I, this case is so crystal clear in my brain because it was the first time I'd seen a man with osteoporosis and I was really shocked and I didn't understand 
how that was possible, but, you know, scientific inquiry, you have to ask more, what else is going on in this person? Mm -hmm. Well, they also had nasal, he also had nasal polyps, you know, and they had to be surgically removed. And I couldn't understand why he had nasal polyps. And then I asked him, you know, what line of work are you in? What's your occupation? Oh, he's been a school janitor for 40 years, and he's exposed to a tremendous amount of chemicals. His nasal polyp started with the chemical exposure and continued despite the repeated surgeries they would grow back but then i made the connection that oh with such exposure to high level of chemicals that's going to play havoc in your acid-base balance in your body exactly what you said todd his bones are the mineral bank that keeps being withdrawn to replenish the acidity in the blood and that's how he developed osteoporosis because he was physically active. It didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And then the vasculature gets damaged by the crystalline minerals and also the kidneys get damaged by the same thing. And we develop additional complications, cardiovascular disease and uh, kidney disease to name just stones. A few. Yeah. Yeah. Osteophytes, you know, where you get um, growths, bony growths elsewhere in your body. Mm -hmm. So all chronic conditions and many acute conditions can certainly be benefited by proper food choices. For me, I can't speak highly enough from my personal experience, probably up until about 17 years of age, I didn't have a clue what proper healthy food was. I would eat whatever. And most of it was sugar-based and almost all of it was heavily processed. And Although I was an athlete and always very active, I know I was never performing at the level that I could have been now in retrospect looking back. And once I cleaned up my diet and really started to make better food choices, that had a huge impact on my life. And it continues to. And I, today I eat differently than I did a couple years ago because I find it's always a dance of listening to your body and determining what works best at this point in time, depending on where you live, depending on what stressors are in your life or what activities you're, you're taking part in. So there's no, there's no one, to use the word, I'll use the word diet. There's no one diet that works for everyone. And I think there's no one diet that works for anyone throughout their life. Absolutely. We are constantly evolving and changing. We're dynamic beings and our moment to moment, our life stage to life stage needs and demands on our body also is changing. What I like about what you said is this idea of change because that also follows nature's cycles. Like we are designed to eat in a seasonal way with whatever is bioregional and that is changing. So it's important to recognize this element of change and there is no fixed permanent, quote unquote, diet, you know, period. Yeah. And that I think adds to the confusion that people have with food, which is already confusing enough because they find something that they think it's finally working for me. And five years later, it turns out it's potentially not. And uh, I had one of uh, direct experience when I, uh, my family bought a farm a number of years ago and we started raising chickens and we started milking goats. And so I had an abundance of eggs and I had abundance of whey from making milk products. And so I was eating a lot of whey and a lot of eggs, far more than I probably should have, but it was like a fast free source of protein. Mm -hmm. And 
my diet was really largely based on that, and I developed, I, I won't call it severe inflammation, but I started to develop strange inflammation, and I went through a period where my hands were so tender and swollen that I couldn't put them in my pockets because it felt like they were being stabbed, and my fingers were literally swollen. I actually had to have my wedding ring cut off of me, and uh, I, I just didn't know what was going on, and I had a a older ankle injury at the time and it was really flaring up and becoming painful and then I went to my naturopath and I had food testing done for allergies and it turned out that whey and eggs were like my two <laughs> alarm foods like they were so I was so high in my sensitivity to those so I stopped eating both of those I stopped eating both of those and the changes were immediate and radical wow and how long did it take for you to notice the changes? Less than two weeks. Wow, and, that's and I significant. Re I remember going from a permanent limp when I was walking to feeling like I had a new ankle in the span of two weeks in my hands. All the inflammation went away. And it also really helped me to realize that I was only seeing the so-called tip of the iceberg when it came to the symptoms. I don't know what was going on internally. How much inflammation was I dealing with internally? On the outside, for the most part, I seemed physically fairly healthy. I, mean, I, mm -hmm. I had a few things that were bothering me, my hands and my ankles, but otherwise, uh, it, there weren't really any obvious signs of ill health, but it certainly had a massive impact on me. So and then I'm wondering, yeah, sorry, I have to ask you another question. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering if you were able to go back to introducing I was just going to say that. Oh, thank you. I don't want to, <laughs> is basically what it comes down to. Um, I have not. Occasionally now I'm sure I have a food that has egg in it. Um, but as far as eating an omelet, I don't know if I'm ever going to have the appetite to do that again. And whey was really just something that I had because it was whey from my own goats. It was just something that it was. I knew it was clean and I had it. What else was I going to do with it? So I dehydrated it and I put it in smoothies and I put it on my eggs. <laughs> like the poison for me, eggs with whey. Um, but that's not something that I, without that source of it, it's not something that I would typically go for anyway. So mostly it's just been the elimination of eggs and it's been slightly challenging. Of course, uh, mm. a lot of cultures, eggs are a big part of the food and traveling. People, it seems like some restaurants only serve eggs for breakfast. And so that has been kind of a, a challenge to adapt to that, but it's certainly been worth it. And I am pretty sure I could eat some eggs now and occasionally and not have any negative side effects. But at the same time, I just don't really feel like risking it because I don't crave them. It's so interesting because part of what you're saying is clearly physiological. Like there's no way... Of course it is. But then there's also this psychological piece of it as well. And I would say I share a similar relationship with sugar. You know, when my dad and my mom were diagnosed with diabetes, we eliminated adding all refined sugar to all food in our entire household. And uh, it's a slippery slope with sugar because if I'm ever around it, um, I want to eat it and I immediately feel out of whack the next day. I just feel like my blood sugar is actually off. And then I say to myself, oh, I need to exercise more. I need to eat more fiber. I need to drink more water. I need to recalibrate my system. But being able to listen to your body and those subtle signs is really 
that learning piece that we all that I need to have in order to do these individualized fine tuning that we I everybody needs to learn about, you know, it's so powerful to have that ability to listen to your body and listen to the signs. For me with sugar, if I go through a couple days where I'm starting to crave something sweet, I realize, well, I need to eliminate it altogether for a few days until that goes away because I don't want to get back in that habit. I think we've all been at a point in some at some point in our life where we're addicted to sugar, and most people probably are in this very moment. And I'm aware of it enough to know that, uh oh, I'm, I'm craving something sweet. So something's out of balance. And if I reflect back, probably I've had some sweets consistently the previous few days. And so I just make that choice in the moment to typically I make that choice to eliminate it. And then those symptoms or those cravings, I should say, go away very soon. It's so powerful. Yeah, it, it's so incredibly powerful. And our body is constantly giving us messages on what it needs. And if we learn you know, I call it learning the language of your body. And that language, just like we all speak the same language, our bodies speak the same language, but we all have different voices, we have inflections, we have tones, we have all these nuances. And I think it's the same with each person as well, with their the language of their body. So if I'm able to completely understand the language of my body, my need for sleep, rest, hydration, sugar, uh, protein, whatever it is, and see how I respond to that and really pay attention, then I start to gain mastery over my choices with food. Do you have any tips for someone who is trying to listen to their body and their body says, eat chocolate cake? <laughs> I think I like your suggestion, which is if your body says, eat chocolate cake, then I think you should try not eating chocolate cake for two days and then see what your body says <laughs> again. And if it still says, eat chocolate cake, then maybe have the whatever you need to have and then listen to your body for two more days and then see what it says and then compare notes. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a necessity to have some basic, I guess, knowledge to be somewhat dubious if your body is saying, give me this and you're aware that that is probably not the healthiest thing to have, such as give me alcohol and you've, you know, alcohol is bad for you. Um, do you have any suggestions for how someone knows when those are the body telling you about its cravings, which are not always healthy versus the body giving you signs that this is what your body needs? Yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but I would put it like this. So let's take the example you gave us of alcohol. If you have some and then your body says, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. You don't need to even finish that. I just need it a little bit then it's probably your body telling you that it needed a little something. But if you have that alcohol and you say, oh, but I want more, then it's probably falling into some kind of harmful pathway. And I see that with sugar. I see that with a lot of things. Uh, for example, my body will tell me you need to, I love lemons. I'm completely addicted to lemons and limes. I have been since I was a kid. So sometimes my body will say, you need to drink lemon with salt, you know, and I say, okay, so I'll drink glass, I'll drink, you know, whole glass of lemon with just a tiny bit of salt for those electrolytes. And then, oh, I feel good. I feel so good. I don't need anything after that. Uh, but if my body says you need a cookie, <laughs> then I have some, and then it says I need more, then I know, whoa, we're going in the wrong direction. Good. Yeah, that's, I think that's very helpful. And that's, it is tricky. <laughs> it's really yeah. tricky because we also, I, I think people in general want to justify their cravings and it's 
oh, just a little bit is it's it's not going to hurt. But and we all I think it's very important to to bear in mind that it's not always about what we eat. It's about the quantity and it's also about the emotional state that we are in when we are eating that particular substance or food. And if we're in a place of extreme enjoyment and appreciation of it and we are not eating excessive quantities of something that might be harmful, then chances are it's not going to be harmful. But if we're eating unconsciously and we're eating to escape some sort of emotion or some sort of stress or we know we're eating something like a whole chocolate cake instead of just a slice, then, and as you said, if your body's giving you messages later, like that didn't feel right, that wasn't good, no thank you. It's so important that we listen to those so that we can then make better choices moving forward, but not berate ourselves for for having done it initially because we're always going to eat things or do things that are probably not the best for us. But it's I think it's very important to learn from that and move forward rather than dwell on the past. Yeah, what I what came to my mind was the word compassion. You know, yeah. how much compassion do I have for myself if I'm hurting or sad? Yeah. If I'm angry and then I'm trying to stuff it with something that I consume. And cultivating forgiveness is an extension of that compassion that we can extend to ourselves as well you know mm -hmm. not that you did something wrong because you ate something but if i can come at it and say oh that's okay i still love you you're still amazing you'll yeah. still make good choices and you might make some mistakes yeah i like that and i also think it's it's partially based on our relationship to food and some people just have a challenging relationship with food and I think for those people, it's very helpful to have advocates and advisors and nutritionists and people who can help them move through the process of, of helping to repair that relationship with food, whereas others, uh, I find, don't have those challenges. And so it's probably, those are the people who can probably get away with eating more of what they want rather than what's necessarily absolutely helpful. Because I know people often go through frustration of watching somebody eat anything they want to eat all day long and it's like if i even ate a spoonful of that i would i would have negative symptoms and i think that's just the part of the conundrum and complexity of food that can sometimes overwhelm people it's true because in some way you don't actually know what's going on inside that person's body yeah you know maybe so, so here's the thing i mean Here's the dangerous thing about comparing oneself to others is that you only see what's on the surface. You can't take a microscope and see all the inflammation that may or may not be happening inside their digestive tract or all the joint pain that is yet to come or whatever it is that that person, I don't wish them ill, but you don't know what's going to happen to them on the inside. And so on the outside, it might look like one thing, but on the inside, that biochemistry of that person is going to be altered because we know that's what these foods do and to your other point about not everyone has a healthy relationship with food it made me think of ayurveda again because in ayurveda the the physical body the actual physical being is called the food body you know it hmm. is a reflection of our food and it's not just the food that we eat it's everything that we consume you know media 
or yeah. whatever we see around us, if we're in nature or if we're in the urban setting or if we meditate, it's everything we consume is our food body. It is our body through the five senses that we take in. And so that is a reflection. And so what it made me think about is if there is a disordered relationship with food, it is also in part a disordered relationship with self, with this food body. And that really ties into a lot of things with body image and, you know, social standards, social norms, feeling judged, being judged, being feared of being judged and all these other things. So good. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's part of, that's a missing part of the puzzle for so many people. And that food just becomes rather than a nutrient of life, it becomes a tool for ignoring and neglecting our needs for suppressing things or a surrogate maybe that chocolate cake is love Mm -hmm. yes that you're not getting or that you're not feeling for whatever reason yeah yeah the alcohol to escape and the chocolate cake to give love to oneself (laughs) which as we said even in in, in the right dose and occasionally can be helpful and beneficial. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it's important that, and I didn't, I didn't mean to, I don't mean to use this as a plug for education, but the fact is, I think it's very important that people do learn more about nutrition and how it impacts their body so that they can have live better lives. Like if I knew what I knew as it now, when I was a, teenager i would have had (laughs) i don't even know it would have been such a different uh phase of my life if i had been eating well so i think it's it's so helpful for people to help navigate through all the conflicting information and navigate through all their their own personal symptoms and relationship with food so the more education uh, that people can get especially in areas such as holistic nutrition i think the better thank you for being part of the holistic nutrition certificate program that is uh, at Pacific Rim College Online. It's an amazing course, and I think anyone who takes that is going to greatly benefit from it. 100%. It was my thrill and joy to be one of the instructors online holistic program. And what I came away from after putting together those courses and delivering it is food affects all of us. And if we can have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with self through food, with others through food, with our environment through food, that's what holism and healing is. So it means a lot to me to be able to contribute to that. So thank you. Thank you. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Anjali, do you want to share with uh, the audience where they can find out more about you? Yeah, uh, restorative medicine. I'm practicing naturopath here in Victoria, BC. And uh, yeah, if you just search me by my name, Anjali Chitale, that's probably the easiest way to find me online. Great. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Dr. Anjali Chitale. You can receive naturopathic care from Anjali through the Restorative Medicine Clinic in Victoria, B.C. 
and you can study online with her in the Holistic Nutrition Online Certificate Program at Pacific Rim College Online. If you feel drawn to the study of holistic nutrition, the School of Holistic Nutrition at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options combining holistic nutrition with acupuncture and Western herbal medicine. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in holistic nutrition by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificroomcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in.